Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week we're passionate about cuddling vamp dolls and definitely not in love with cuddling Rory Campbell in a very radical comic known as Excalibur 74 in the name of love. Excalibur number 74 was originally published in February 1994 and the creative team is Richard Ashford on writing, Ian Churchill on pencils, Randy Elliott, Harry Candelario, and Cam Smith on inks. Pat Gary and Chris Mathis on colors, Pat Rousseau on letters, and Susan Gaffney and Bob Harris on editing. So how long have you been drawing comic books? Since I was about seven years old, little kid. What did your parents think about it? They hated it. They hated it. Oh, yeah. After I, I got a job and they saw that you can make a living out of third day, you'll hear no complaints anymore. And you created X-Force? Mm-hmm. So what is this drawing of? This is the Spike Man. And what's this right here? This is the camera on top of your head that will record the wrongdoings of others. So Rob, have you had any formal art training? No. Just uh, a lot of imagination, I think. Wait till so I say it and then look down, or just open it and say it. Fly button. Welcome back to our podcast that became so 90s so fast, I can't remember anything else. I also can't imagine a funner crew to join me in reminiscing about my tweenhood. I will introduce the crew in turn, but starting with myself, I am Dr. Anna Papard. I'm especially keen about talking sex, gender, and superheroes and comics and elsewhere in all those fancy, pricey academic places and around the internet at places like Shelf Dust and ComicsXF and at the Twitter account Sequential Scholars, where I think Andrew and I, but mostly Andrew, will be talking about Teen Titans when this episode drops. So check that out. I am also Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR manager. And in that capacity, I'm not sure how I feel about this comic book's assertion that my client's costume is a blue fur matching bodysuit with a singlet on top. But uh, we can talk about that in due course. I am joined as always by Mav. Please reacquaint us with your backstory. Uh, hi. Um, we, we read a comic this week. It had some art that I have feelings about. Um, feelings are good. Yeah. Oh, they're not good. They're not good feelings. <laughs> but hi, uh, my, my name is Christopher Maverick. You can call me Mav. And I guess we're going to talk about this comic, which I read last night. I read it again this morning because I wanted to like see if I could, you know, like formulate anything. So I've read this twice in the last 24 hours. Don't remember a damn thing. No, nothing. <laughs> There's nothing notable here happening. I didn't hate it. This is not Promethean Exchange. It's got some of my least favorite characters in it. So, eh. But um, wow, this is um, it's gonna be an episode of a of a show that about a comic. Um, hi. I am so excited about today's episode. So wow. don't um, undersell it. I, good, because I'm because I'm just gonna be. I'm, my, my name's Christopher Maverick. You can call me Mal. I'm just gonna be here today. That's my. That's what I've got. I'm I'm, I'm here. Please. I am present. <laughs> Wait, is is this show about comics? Oh, I, I'm, I'm in the wrong place. I'm sorry. <laughs> no. Well, on that note, I am genuinely excited to talk about this one. I oh, feel good. like it's a, it's well. Anyway, we'll get into it. I just feel like the art is weird in a way that I'm excited to talk about it. So well, I have so many thoughts about Ian Churchill. Mm-hmm. Oh, God. Okay. <laughs> okay, we'll get to it. <laughs> Andrew, please prime us on your abilities. Uh, hi, I'm Dr. J. Andrew Deman. I'm a lecturer at St. John's University uh, and co-project lead for Sequential Scholars, which Anna just mentioned is working on Teen Titans and is currently so in the good. process <laughs> of peer pressuring Dr. Christopher Maverick to share his brilliant thoughts on Terra from Teen Titans with our readers. And I think we're going to win 
because the way you convince an academic to contribute to anything is to just ask them what they hypothetically would write about, like something like <laughs> no pressure, but what would right. you want? And then to I accidentally write a twenty. I accidentally then, write a twenty-page <laughs> paper in text messages. I didn't. I really. I was like, oh, I'm busy. And it's but really here's some, good. Here's some brief thoughts. <laughs> And then it's like, oh, I just typed like 2,000 words. Oops, sorry. And it's better than anything that I've drafted in like two weeks of working on Titans. Oh, sorry. Man. Hopefully we pressure I'm math. so much a fan. Okay. I mean, we can just talk. We can just write that today instead of talking about this book. I'm perfectly happy to just spend the next 20 minutes talking about Tara. Um, this is no, we're definitely <laughs> talking about this book because okay, we have fine. a guest who has been doing research and is super excited to talk about it. Fine. I'm excited about the guest. Far more about than anything I have to say about this. <laughs> so our still totally 90s team is joined this week by a wonderful guest who knows a thing or three about this era of comics and a bunch more things besides. The pod is thrilled to welcome Dr. Lee Constantinou. Welcome, Lee. Oh, I'm, I'm really uh, thrilled to be here. <laughs> We're so <laughs> thrilled to have you. <laughs> I am going to tell our listeners a little bit more about you and we will get into why you're so perfectly placed for this issue. So Dr. Lee Constantino is Associate Professor of English at the University of Maryland College Park. He wrote the novel Pop Apocalypse, The Literary History, Cool Characters, Irony in American Fiction, and The Last Samurai Reread with Samuel Cohen. He also edited The Legacy of David Foster Wallace and with Georgiana Benita, he co-edited the book Artful Breakdowns, the comics of Art Spiegelman, forthcoming from University Press of Mississippi. He is also the author of a really wonderful essay about Rob Liefeld and 90s success, mm -hmm. which we will definitely be discussing today in conversation with this issue. I made everybody read it, Lee. We're primed to talk about it with you. <laughs> we got also homework. repped it on Twitter and yeah. uh, <laughs> one of the Liefeld parody accounts enjoyed it. So uh, it's been making the rounds this week. Oh, very cool. So Lee, we've chatted a little bit about comics before, obviously, but we'd love to do comics origin stories when somebody is new to the pod. So yeah, hit us with yours. When did you first start reading and falling in love with comics well um I, I, i'm sorry to say it was in the early 90s uh, <laughs> yeah. it was um so i guess i to, to sort of date myself i was born in uh 1978 i started reading i guess i started reading comics in the late 80s really the early 90s and i i really got on board right at that moment basically at the end of the claremont run on X-Men, uh, like kind of when Jim Lee was still at Marvel and all those people jumped ship to Image Comics. And, you know, I, I, I jumped ship with them. I mean, when I was in high school, I, I was like, I'm, I want to do superhero comics. I want to be, you know, an artist writer, you know, I want to, you know, enter this industry. Uh, and so those are the people that I was reading at the time. I was reading Wizard, you know, I, I go to the local mall. I, you know, I grew up in New York. So, you know, I would go to the mall and I would like, um, you know, go, go and find whatever books on comics I could find there. You know, I went to local comics shops and uh, yeah, I guess, I guess that's where, where I started. And I, I think comics is responsible for me ending up in the academy, uh, weirdly enough, like I read uh, Understanding Comics when I was in high school and it like blew my, I don't know what, 14 year old mind. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, you know, wh whatever else, you know, you think about that book, it's like really, really good at getting you to think yeah. formally about art. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so like, you know, I went into college and I think like my obsession with comics really uh, prepared me to be a good English major, <laughs> for, for lack of a better term. And <laughs> And then, you know, I don't know, like in college, I did my thesis on mouse. Somehow I got into grad school and I did a whole bunch of other things that were not comics related. And uh, way too many years later, I'm kind of like, it. yeah, I'm, I'm returning now to, to that. I, I guess I'm, I'm kind of interested in returning to that 90s moment and thinking about it both as someone who lived through it. And then maybe, you know, to think about like, what could you do as a critic and scholar and thinking about this moment. So that's kind of where I'm coming from. Yeah, I am very interested in that as well, as you know. Can I ask you a more general comics question about comics academia? Like, if you had to say what draws you to the study of comics, you know, why should we be studying comics? Why are, there inter why are they interesting? Why do they particularly interest you? I mean, what do you think? Why should we be studying comics? You know, I don't want to. I don't want to impose my answer on others. Like when I teach comics, I'm like there are kind of two approaches I see in the academy to studying and, and writing about comics. Uh, one has a kind of cultural studies flavor to it, where it's like you know these books are important because they tell us something about the culture. They you know kind of uh, highlight and foreground certain kinds of perennial themes you know that are 
more easily gotten to through uh, the study of comics. And then the other kind of way of approaching them is to say, like, uh, you know, these are artworks that are interesting in their own right. And, you know, we can study them just as much as we can study a really great novel, a really great film. Uh, and that's kind of more kind of what I gravitate toward. But then the kind of the perverse maybe twist is I'm like, you know, you can do that with Rob Liefeld too, you know, like, mm -hmm. okay, you know, terrible artist in all sorts of ways, but, you know, he's not just the kind of, you know, he's not just of kind of cultural interest. You, you can actually perversely maybe like do a close reading of one of his uh, panels and you can get access to certain things that uh, <laughs> might not be obvious on a kind of a first glance. I think he is one of the most important creators in the history of the field. And I've said that on the show before and I will say it again. Mm -hmm. I, I'm, I understand the problematic. I think he is super important and super interesting, more interesting than most um, artists for various reasons, the good or the good and the bad. Yes. Yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. I mean, we'll get into that a little bit more, but yeah, it's just, it's wild how little work has been done on that period, even just based on the industry importance of image. I mean, you know, <laughs> we talk so much about creator rights and comics and how we need to sort of emphasize the individuality of creators. And that's so much a part of like the auteurism of comic studies. And yet <laughs> we look at something like image and it gets totally kind of buried in historical analyses of comics when it should to me be so central, but it's clearly not central because people don't don't like it for reasons having to do with the legitimacy of comic studies and yeah, <laughs> yeah like that there. neglect in itself is interesting i have a thought there that i'm curious as to lee's opinion on because you know having read his article which i'm sure anna will get to in a moment i think one of the reasons that we don't see as much study um rob in particular but just that era the 90s era in general i think that there is an inclination amongst scholar, comic scholars, and I'm including us. I'm not, I'm not even saying I'm better than this. I'm saying including us. There's an inclination to look and say, I don't really like this. It kind of sucks. And therefore, Rob Liefeld's art sucks, and I'm, I'm, I'm above it, and I'm going to do something serious. I'm going to look at a mouse. I'm going to look at a Jack Kirby. I'm going to look at a, you know, insert thing here in a way that is, that would not be viable for any other scholarship that we, we might do. We would never just say, I don't like this, so I'd skip it for any other historical period throughout all of literary studies. It's just this weird thing that we do that I think is sort of unfortunate. Um, I think that the I think that if you really and truly do hate, you know, the 90s, the literal most popular that comic comics have ever been in their entire publication history, the you know, the best selling period period, then I think we probably owe it to analyze why that happened and why we have such a guttural distaste for it. If nothing else, like I think that that's an, that's interesting in and of itself. And then also, as I said, I think that um, I don't think it's fair to even just say that like Rob Liefeld can't draw, for instance. I think he is just making choices that I wouldn't make. That's <laughs> and those are different. Those are different. <laughs> like those are that's it. I mean it is it's a fundamentally different statement yeah, yeah. because as an artist I as an artist I have you know for parody reasons copied Rob Liefeld work before and it's a lot harder than I think people give it you know most of the people who say oh he sucks probably can't draw at all I can draw a little bit and, right. it, and it, you know it's tricky well, so I was going to talk about it after the summary, but I think since we're already talking about it, let's just talk about it now. So the essay that we keep referring to of Lee's is called The Cartoonist as Entrepreneur, Rob Liefeld, Image Comics, and the Art of the Creator Owner. It's really, really good. We're going to rep it like crazy when the episode comes out. But um, I was wondering, Lee, if you could sort of walk us through that piece, you know, what made you want to write it? What did you want to talk about in that piece? What did you want to achieve? Because I'm really interested in your approach to that piece. Like you do this thing in the piece where I don't think... It's funny, but you don't make fun of Liefeld. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I definitely didn't want to make fun of him. I, you know, if anyone uh, was kind of making fun of my own 13 year old self, you know, like, uh, <laughs> yeah. and at the same time, kind of trying to give that 13 year old self his due, you know, in that, like, I think there is something really serious going on with Rob Liefeld's comics. I've been really struggling for a number of years to write a book on kind of the change in the status of comics and the prestige of comics. And it's gone through various convolutions. And more and more, I've been kind of getting obsessed with and interested in the kind of the creator owner moment in the late 80s and the 90s, the early 90s as a like a particular juncture where lots of 
really interesting things were going on in the culture and lots of forces came together, like this kind of uh, bubble around comics, this kind of oversaturation of the direct market, uh, the rise of these kind of comic book uh, celebrity heroes, you know, and, and this doesn't only encompass image, you know, you can think of like, uh, you know, Vertigo as, as another, you know, example of this. And, you know, even, you know, lo lots of, you know, lots, lots of different publishers were kind of uh, pursuing this at, at, at this historical moment. And so, you know, I had this chance to edit a special issue of the journal Post 45 Contemporaries. And uh, I had kind of like been interested in this idea that like lots of different art forms are being uh, redescribed and elevated and treated as if they were art when previously they were not. So there's, you know, all this talk about the golden age of television or yeah. the podcast as an art form and you can kind of go down the list. And so I thought it would be cool to like bring together scholars who are like working on these different media and their uh, supposed you know, elevation and, and kind of think what it has in common. And then for my piece of this, I was like, you know, there was something about Rob Liefeld, like that I, I had always like, I'd always disliked him, you know, as an, as an artist when I was 13. And yet there's something kind of also absorbing and charismatic and charming about his art that I wanted to kind of like wrestle with. And so that, that kind of was the origin of the piece. And I can kind of like, I can talk through the arguments, the kind of beat by beat arguments of the piece if you want. But like that, that's kind of where I was coming from when I, I thought, you know, maybe it would be an interesting thing to like write seriously about Liefeld. And like, you know, like other people have written about him. Obviously, you know, Anna, like you're, you, you've written like basically the best stuff on Liefeld, you know, but like almost no one else has. So it was kind of kind of also like new territory. People just haven't really written about it very much. Well, yeah. Well, and I've told this story on the pod before, but like the peer review comments for that essay, like we're both like, I hate Rob Liefeld, but <laughs> like they were just embarrassed even anonymously <laughs> to even talk to me about it, which was hilarious. But um, but yeah, I would love to hear you talk a little bit more about the actual argument in the piece, like because you said a couple of times about Liefeld's work being very revealing. So to you, what is it revealing of? Like what it reveals to me is the way that the the rise or the the change in prestige of comics isn't kind of like the story we usually tell uh, of like you know all these you know shitty corporate comics were being published and then Art Spiegelman came and saved the day <laughs> yeah. uh, you know like uh, now we can now we can assign you know I love look I love Mouse I love Fun Home I love Persepolis you know all of these are wonderful books but you know the fixation of the scholarly community and comic scholars on those texts, I think has to some degree falsified the history of comics. Yeah. And uh, to me, like the important argument is that like, there's this moment where the aspiration of comics to become a kind of art and to engage in art gets connected to the entrepreneurial drive to become the owner of your own kind of like portfolio of intellectual property. And uh, in this case, you know, to own your own characters, to own your own means of distribution, to create your own imprint. And so the story of Image Comics is this story of a bunch of, you know, uniquely positioned artists who figured out a way to leverage their fame and to achieve the kind of autonomy and freedom that they wanted. And so that's kind of my way of reading the first issue of Youngblood. That is to say, you know, everyone kind of shits on that issue. Uh, even Liefeld came to regret elements of it uh, <laughs> later, but it, it, it's from another perspective. If you kind of look at it closely, it's this kind of culmination of his freedom as an artist. You know, this is who, who this is who Liefeld was. You know, he wanted to create these kind of like contextless, like super muscled bodies floating in space, you know? Uh, this is what, you know, this was the, the, the kind of the, the realization of his vision as an artist. Uh, and like, to me, like the way I see it is like, this is the high watermark of his artistic freedom. It's kind of a, a sad story when you kind of like follow up and you realize he, you know, he loses the rights to all these characters. He kind of like, things don't go well after this in various ways, but that's kind of what the argument is about. The kind of the piece is about r returning to that moment and making a claim that you can do something like a close reading of the the images in Young Blood One, and you can kind of see the way that like those images are you know kind of both allegories of Liefeld's own position and you know kind of replicate a lot of the concerns that he's thinking about with respect to like artistic freedom, autonomy, you know, being a celebrity creator. 
at a time where all these pressures are coming on you. And so, you know, like that, that kind of, that's how this article came together. And, you know, if, if I continue, you know, developing it, I, I think I, I'll, I'll want to expand the focus beyond Liefeld to think about, you know, other creators at Image and think about what happens to Image after this moment as well. Well, I, sh- I shouldn't say this on mic because <laughs> maybe this will be your idea and you can run with it. But honestly, I just want to read the book. So it's yours if you want it. But I did pre-pitch a book at one time to a publisher that was Image Comics, The Aesthetics of Excess. And then I never went back to it. But um, I would very much like to read that book, Lee. So if you write it for me, I'd be just as happy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think if I, if, if I did it, Image would be one chapter. Mm-hmm. You know, like I, I think I would want to do, you know, like chapters on different, different, different aspects of this moment. So, like maybe a chapter in Vertigo, a chapter on yeah. mm-hmm. yeah. Image, a chapter on like the Creators, you know, Bill of Rights. Uh, you know, uh, I don't know if I can bear like writing about Dave Sim, but like may, may, maybe I would do that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, well, a couple of things because I do want to sort of relate some of these ideas to Churchill's work in this issue. But one of the lines that we really all loved from your essay that we all <laughs> sort of jumped to at the same time was like about it's not how life it's not that Liefeld's bodies can fly; they're innocent of the truth of gravity. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> We all really liked that, but um, but yeah, can just just briefly before we get to the before we get to the issue summary, like let's talk about the specifics of you know what we might broadly characterize as sort of the '90s slash image style, like a little bit more. And I know we'll all have thoughts on it, but you know, again, you're our guest, Lee, so I'll give you first crack at it. But in terms of that style representing all of these things that you're talking about about creator rights and individuality and control, like what about that style signals those things to you? Yeah. Okay. Okay, like so, we can go from like the style of these uh, super kind of these super bodies, right? Like that is to say, uh, these are kind of like kind of ro- roided out, you know, muscle bound, you know, like the the it's like the muscle mass bodybuilder type of physique, you know, for the men. And then, I mean, the women are obviously these highly improbably uh, thin waisted you know, highly objectified sexual fantasies, you know, like, so like the, you know, it's, it's, it's very targeted to the 14, 15 year old boy, you know, who, who is, you know, the kind of normative, if not empirical reader of these kinds of texts. And I think, you know, like it's, it's, there are lots of ways to think about it in, in relation to kind of creator, the moment of the creator owner, you know, one thing is to say that like, uh, you know, this isn't, exclusive to the 90s, but it, it is a certain kind of fantasy of power. And it's a fantasy of power tied to like a fantasy of self-making that, you know, you can transform your body, you can, yeah, yeah. you know, shape yourself a certain way, you know, like the, in the case of Liefeld, it's connected to the fact that, uh, you know, these are not just superheroes, but they're like celebrity superheroes, right? Like young blood, you know, they're kind of constantly uh, in the limelight they're constantly running away from reporters and so there's a you know there's a feedback loop i think between the kind of way that liefeld represents bodies the way that he himself is this you know kind of you know i don't i don't want to you know speculate on his own workout regime but like you know he's also very like you know built and, and very you know committed to bodybuilding and you know, I think I think there's a there's a kind of story of empowerment you can tell that is connected not only to like the idea that you can transform your body, but that like you can be this kind of I don't know master of the universe. That you know, uh, for you know, in the case of Liefeld, you you own your own company, you own your own properties, you 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 get to you know draw the bodies that you want in the style that you yeah, want, and yeah. uh, editor editor be damned, you know, like I'm I'm my own editor now. Yeah, I really love the line that you end the piece with too, that you know, about the fantasy of controlling these bodies and how that relates to the to the fantasy of the creator owner, you know, controlling all of these exaggerated muscular bodies as part of the fantasy, because that, that's very much something that a conclusion that I came to, too, in my own writing, you know, thinking about ways of reclaiming masculinity, you know, in a lot of senses, because... Uh, there's sort of a feminization implicit in being sort of a work for hire creator. You don't own your own outputs. You know, you are this cog in the machine. And even to me, aspects of the excessiveness of this style, you know, so many lines, you know, like you're really making the point that I drew a lot here. I worked hard on this thing. Look how much I drew. 
and sort of looking to that as a way to distinguish yourself from the house style of years past where all of the art was supposed to look the same I mean not the same because you know, obviously like creators always have had their own unique styles but sort of working within the bounds of genre but still trying to make yourself look unique within the bounds of genre seems to me like a tension that a lot of these artists working in similar styles are experimenting with and sort of finding their own ways around that conflict. I could say more about that if, if you want. <laughs> well, why don't we why don't we do an issue summary and come yeah. back to it by talking specifically about some of the stuff with Churchill in this issue um, and kind of like folding that into it a little bit because obviously Churchill's not the same artist as Liefeld, but there are some similar things going on in terms of the deployment of excess. So let's try to let's try to do that a little bit, and I'm sure we'll have lots more to say about it. Because seriously, I this was like we had a bunch of '90s excess issues in a row, mm-hmm. and this was the one that I was like. Like, this is, to me, the most interesting 90s success one to have Lee on the podcast for. So I am looking forward that to talking fair. about it. That is fair. Given what I said at the beginning, saying it's the most interesting of the 90s, that is absolutely fair. Like <laughs> that opening splash page alone. Uh, uh-huh. Anyway, <laughs> let's get to it. Okay. I know we've got lots of lovely listeners reading along with the pod. We definitely hand you a Banff doll if you were crying. But for now, let's mm. take comfort from an issue summary. Excalibur 74 opens with Rachel Summers sporting a mullet that's truly outrageous, even for her, draped sexily across a backwards chair to examine a computer console bearing data from the team's experiences in the Proteus room from the last issue. She's trying to figure out why she and Brian keep switching places. Suddenly, a portal opens and there's Brian. Brian calling for help, but Brian starts draining too much power and Rachel and Brian are both in terrible pain, so Rachel forces the portal closed. Megan, meanwhile, is being examined by Kitty, Moira, and Rory, aka Ahab, as they try to diagnose Megan's current condition, which can be succinctly described as still sort of comatose, but now in her monstrous form. Rachel joins and Rory starts to suspect Rachel's keeping something from them based on her reaction to Megan. Elsewhere, Kirk confronts the imprisoned Spoor, spouting platitudes about how all life is sacred and he can't hate anyone and no one is beyond saving, and yada yada yada. Spore's not buying, and Kurt gets increasingly agitated, again affected by Spore's powers. Kurt's other contribution to the issue is laying in bed, remembering Cerise, and stating his intention to confront Mystique about his parentage in the upcoming pages of X-Men Unlimited. Back to the Rachel plot, Rory follows Rachel outside, and Rachel confesses she's the only one who can bring Brian back. Rory is clearly spitting, saying that whatever comes, Rachel won't have to face it alone. He shows up at Rachel's door later that night with the classic I-can't-sleep excuse. Elsewhere again, Kitty sifts through bags filled with items from the X-Men mansion that belonged to Iliata Rasputin, who, as you'll recall, recently died from the legacy virus. She opens a bag and finds a Banff doll and a thank you note from Jubilee. We also check in with the games master, who's now in league with Sinister. Sinister lambasts Sienna Blaze for her failure to get the DNA template of Proteus from Moira's lab, and is about to punish her when she says that she was able to scratch Rachel's face. Sinister grabs her hand and recovers a sample of Rachel's DNA. In the end, we go back to Megan, screaming into the night as she breaks out of her restraints. Everyone tries to calm her down, but when Megan grabs Rachel by the neck, Rory takes matters into his own hands and ejects Megan with a sedative. Rachel tells Rory he has no right to interfere. Their early romantic chemistry perhaps irreparably damaged. Thank goodness for that. Okay. (laughs) So (laughs) I'm going to come right back to you, Lee, for just some first impressions about about the particulars of this issue. Anything that particularly stood out to you that you're that you're looking forward to discuss from the art to the plot to anything else? Um, So I guess, you know, I'm not someone who really followed Excalibur and so I haven't read a lot of it before that relevant to what we have here (laughs) yeah yeah I mean I'm just gonna I'm just gonna come out and say that I I I feel like uh this this isn't this isn't very good (laughs) I feel like this is just not this is just really genuinely a mess like I guess the thing that bothers me the most about this issue are like the panel layouts like they're really really messy unnecessarily they're sort of like i don't know like i'm not i'm not someone who's like i don't believe in the 180 degree rule or anything like that you know i'm not saying that cartoonists should follow this strictly but like there's just like you know you see bodies and you're like i'm not really sure what's going on here there's a moment where like mr sinister has sienna blaze's hand in his hand sure he's (laughs) he's doing something to it i don't really understand like like there's this panel right like fascinating these dna samples or of an alternate timeline, a different genetic path, you know, and he goes on and it's like, what is going on in that panel? I don't, anyway, so I have problems with this issue. I, I think it's really interesting in all the ways you're saying, but, uh, you know, like, yeah, 
I, I have I have I have feelings as I forget I forget who said that, but I that I also name. have feelings. Yes, yes. Uh-huh. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Thank you, Mav. Yes. All right. Let me grab some first impressions from Andrew Mav because we haven't heard from you yet in this episode, Andrew. So I'm going to come to you to to get yourself on the record about your thoughts about this comic. So what was your reaction to reading this one, Andrew? Uh, mixed mixed bag. I, I think I, I agree with everything Lee's saying. I, I think the paneling is excess, which we've talked about, but it doesn't have a lot of like direction to it. it it's just dynamic for the sake of being dynamic it doesn't have the precision um that we would see in the influence of the 90s excess style someone like um, neil adams right um where it, it's doing a lot of these stylized layouts but to more of a purpose and, and with a little bit more of an agenda and then the writing i'm okay with like it's still trying to do the claremont thing and i, I like the way it's isolating the characters and giving them individual motivations and beats even if they are very inconsistent I'll always hate the Rory thing. We'll talk about that. Um, and I find I'm getting bored with Kitty as like the bearer of Ilyana's wound. I, mm. I think they need to do something more with her and not just define her via grief. Cause that again, puts her back to sort of drop and we've seen the character grow. And so I, I'd like to see a little bit more happening, but I think there's, there's some good pieces here. Uh, and I would, I would even single out like, this is a good cover. Uh, it's, it's a good picture of Mr. Sinister and I don't know, maybe I'm reaching, but sure. <laughs> Yeah, I actually think it's a pretty dynamic cover. Like, I mean, it would stand out to me on the comic stand, which is the point. I think it's Lashley. Lashley? Yeah, it's Lashley. Okay, well, Mav, you already said you had feelings about it. I mean, like, what is it that made this one feel different to you than, like, the past ones? Because you weren't totally down on on the ones that we had leading up to this one. I like Ian Churchill a lot. I actually really do. I'm a fan of his work. He has a really good run on Supergirl. He has a run on... Uh, the post New 52 Teen Titans that literally no one likes, I appreciate his art. <laughs> I actually do. I, I mean, and I'm not being ironic. It is not a popular iteration of the series, but I am a fan of Ian Churchill's. This oh, may was, be the worst work he... of his career. <laughs> Just was he the artist that did the Power Girl, or not Power Girl, Wonder that did Girl. the. The Wonder, Wonder Girl Girls. boob cover that caused so much no, strife. But, oh, okay. No, but he he took over from that artist. Okay. <laughs> he he did not draw that cover, but that is the era. What I find interesting about Churchill is he very much has that 90s success style to this day. Mm-hmm. That said, he has a cartoonist sensibility, and I mean an animated cartoonist sensibility. Sort of like I talked about, if you go back to when we talked about Joe Mads on, on that, the episode where he showed up, he reminds me of that in a way. He has a, he has a sensibility of intentionality, of humor. It's refreshing. Uh, Chris Bacalo's in this area. Um, he is very good. That is not in this issue. That person did not show up here. This is something that is trying to be Rob Liefeld on some pages. It's trying to be Jim Lee on other pages. It's trying to be Bart Sears on pages. It is all over the place. On that splash page where Rachel is sexy, I guess. On the <laughs> like chair. the opening one? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, even for a broke back page panel, I don't understand how her waist and her butt work like literally this feels like <laughs> not, not like it works in an inhuman barbie way which is what um what liefeld's a, a, a accused of in even liefeld's worst artwork where people are like oh no human body looks like that yeah he knows he i mean he's he, he is very well aware that human bodies don't look like that he's not trying to draw a human body he is trying to draw the essence of boob or the essence of peck that's what he's doing. That's not here. This is just random and weird and so uncanny valley-ish that it makes me unable to concentrate on the story. But then I, I host this podcast where I'm forced to do that. <laughs> and I can't just throw the book away like I did like 20 something years ago when I read it. So I pay attention. And then I realize like when I'm paying attention that the story is not good. <laughs> like like the like the logic of Megan wants Rachel to bring Bi- oh, Brian back but why does Megan know this the last time I saw Megan I she was catatonic under a waterfall where is Farron I mean I don't really care cuz I don't care about <laughs> Farron but I'm really curious and like even last issue Rachel didn't seem to even be aware of what was going on with Brian, but here she just knows Rory, I guess, has the hots for or not. Did they sleep together? Because he like he literally shows up and he's like, oh, I, you know, I'm outside of her room because I couldn't sleep. Maybe I'll ask her to dinner. But then that's not followed up like at all. Like they're just 
later he's just like coming to save her from Megan. And I don't know where any of that happened. Like literally it's just messy and sloppy. And I wasn't joking. I've read this twice in 24 hours and I'm having trouble keeping what happens in my head. Like it just, like I get lost with it. You know, who is this person in Moira McTaggart, like um, um, <laughs> uh, lab coat, because she's not acting like the Moira from last episode and she's not acting like the Claremont one. It's just she's just like, a, oh, yeah, I'm a scientist. I'm going to do scientisty things. It's just weird. It's it's weird and sloppy. And I know, you know, it's not as good as um, the previous I- issue that was written that was written by Ashford. And it's. Seriously, probably Ian Churchill's worst work of his career. Like I am a fan. And <laughs> this is not it. And this is not it. Like I, I think that I think that an analysis of the work that he does to this day and that he was doing in this era, he did some X-Men stuff. He had a run on cable. Like I mean, if you want to talk about 90s success, the comic cable is that. And Churchill drew that for a while. And I think that those things play very well into Lee's article, but none of that's in this book. And, and, and it's just like other than the names of the people and I'm like what's going on so that's that's my flaw with it I just I don't like this but it's not it's not even bad enough to where I'm like this is bad and therefore it's interesting it's just forgettable I don't disagree with any of that but at the same yeah. time I just like for me part of the fascination of something like that opening splash page with Rachel it's just that like it kind of gets at some of the stuff that we were talking about in terms of nothing makes sense other than the desire to stand out right you know it is just trying Mm -hmm. to create something memorable and beyond that none of it makes sense and then the uncanny valleyness of of it is almost part of that I mean she looks like an insect her arms are actually quite muscular Mm -hmm. and of course you know the exaggerated boobs which we expect her hair is very excessive just for an excuse to draw hair she's on fire for no apparent reason like her legs just proportionally are not correct at all but just everything about this pose and this scene all of the choices are not made for narrative reasons they're made through a desire to stand out you know to look cool to like be dynamic in some sense except for the dynamic the sort of definition of dynamism is so broad that it really is just i want people to look at this and have a reaction you know, right. and it doesn't like extend beyond that that much. And I mean, I don't know, like, what do you think, Lee? Am I off base there? Do you see some of that just trying to make an impression going on in an image like that? Yeah, I guess. Okay, so he, maybe here's my feeling after hearing all of you that like, maybe what's like weird about this comic, there's like a dissonance, I feel like, between the, the Liefeld type figuration and the attempt to do a kind of Chris Claremont story, you know, yeah. like the, yeah. the, these two things are moving like in opposition to each other. Most of this issue is like Mora and Rory are like having coffee. And it's like, it's it, this, this moment is figured in like really ridiculous page length panels that like are dynamic for no reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's the, the whole way through, it's just people hanging out in the office uh, basically, but like in Liefeld style, you know? So like, I don't know, you read the, the, the excessive Liefeld stuff and like people are, you know, like, shooting each other and getting into terrible fights all the time. And so the the kind of, you know, the excess kind of goes with the story. Yeah. Maybe yeah. a little bit better. And and here there's a kind of there's a there's a like I'm seeing more as I'm kind of going through this again, looking at it like more of a dissonance between the kind of the content and the form. You know, like this this would be maybe more interesting if like you know we had like the three by three grid you know take your time these, these characters are having emotions like let's look at their faces a little bit more closely yeah. <laughs> <laughs> instead of like i don't know like rachel's butt when she's standing on yeah. the top of a, a, a cliff you know like it's, of, yep. <laughs> yeah are, are, do you have like a spoiler kind of policy no, on this no, like no 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 please <laughs> so like i guess like my research is like suggests to me that like so like rory is Ahab, right? The character yeah. Ahab. Yeah. It's, like, supposed they, be a, it's supposed to be a secret, but they made it obvious secret. from his very first. Yeah, words. yeah. not so. There's there's no narrative tension whatsoever. They keep saying, "Hey, here's this guy. We wonder who he is. He's kind of mysterious." <laughs> By the way, we just had this flashback about Ahab a page ago. Hey, hey. Hey. By the way, like, here's this guy with the same white streak in his hair that I know, Ahab has. I know. I mean, who could he right possibly be? I know. And yeah. nobody and nobody notices, including the one person who has spent her life tortured by who looked at him. He is her Before abuser. He was she a has, cyborg. 
right that he is her abuser that he that she stared at every day for her entire formative years she She's should see Ahab's also face like everywhere. one of the most powerful telepaths on the planet right. yeah like just so many but, things but no she she just she never picks up on it ever and it's infuriating <laughs> <laughs> yeah you said it wasn't very good yeah that's a, yes you were on par this is the not good not very good era of this comic <laughs> I guess yeah. What I'm what I'm saying is that, like this art style might have worked with a different kind of story. Here it feels like you know like uh, Chris Claremont style you know issue you know has a very different kind of pacing and you know a very different kind of orientation. And so uh, I'm not saying that, that it couldn't be done uh, well together, but I don't think it's being done well in this particular issue. Well, and I mean I, I'll let Andrew speak to this if he would like as well, but I mean one of the things that you see with the evolution of, of Claremont's career too is the way that, you know, in the best case scenario like the stories become geared to which artists he's working with, right? And I mean this comic is called In the Name of Love it's ostensibly like <laughs> a slow burn romance emotions issue and so you know, the one of the obvious parallels, which would be in a totally different direction from the Claremont issue would be the Paul Smith romances issue, right? So obviously that's sort of a case of like form following function in terms of like boy that would be a great story for smith to draw and when you're working with that artist you're like you give them those types of stories to draw but yeah am i totally off the mark there andrew would you agree that sort of claremont writes for his artists in some ways um yeah i don't totally i, I think he lets that kind of define um, um the direction that they want to go and there's lots of accounts from the artists of them being um, um brought in in conversation like like literally starting with what do you like to draw uh <laughs> build arcs around that you can see that really clearly with things like cockrum um where if it's a dave cockrum issue we're heading towards outer space yeah mm. let's do space opera yeah like every time yeah no i think there's a lot happening there in terms of again that that sort of claremont imitation that lee was talking about um, and i think this work like I, I like the spore scene I, I think the idea of picking up on a beat from a battle that a lot of writers would just never reference again uh, and having hurt have to um, contemplate uh, the status of his views on pacifism in response to something that he did in the heat of battle that that to me is like kind of the good kind of thing that claremont would often do in the text so i, I thought that was pretty solid i thought the agency that ashford was giving rachel was actually pretty good spending a lot of time in her head uh but again the rory thing for me just wipes all that yeah. out instantaneously well yeah and i mean similar feelings sort of about the kitty scene i mean i love this freaking bamp doll scene it's great like i did a whole claremont run thread about how <laughs> you know the ways that the bamp doll is exchanged among various female characters evokes these complex bonds between these characters and it's a very resonant image in a lot of ways although i do have questions about whether this is the original bamp doll that that girl had given Amanda, which raises That's, other yeah. questions. <laughs> she doesn't. Well, she doesn't know. I mean, like it's weird because this is the one that Kitty had a Bamf doll too, um, early early on, and I assume this is her childhood Bamf doll, which is different than the one that he gave Amanda because. I don't know how Kitty would have gotten Amanda's back in order to give it to Ilyana and Jubilee. Timeline-wise, it doesn't overlap to the degree where it could be the same doll, right. so it's I assume uncertain. that he has multiple. <laughs> yeah, that, that he's just, I assume that Kurt's just like, you know what? I'm gonna... people. What people would love? People would love the gift of me. I'm gonna sew yeah. some, some me dolls. Um, also, okay. if you guys are wondering what you're getting for Christmas this year, you know, Mav dolls. That's what I'm gonna do. Everybody. Mav dolls for everybody. <laughs> That's a thing that people do in this world. Anyway, I do really like that carry through because uh, during Fatal Attractions, there's an issue where Ileana has the Bamp doll and then she's being comforted by Jubilee and Kitty. So then Jubilee now has the doll and she sends it back to Kitty and then Kitty's going to have it for the duration of Excalibur. And much, much later in the X-Men Christmas special from a few years back, uh, Jubilee still has the doll and gives it to her son Shogo, which is like really wonderful. So I do really love that in theory. But yeah, the excess of the style for this quiet moment is perhaps not serving this moment as well as it could have i love like the challenge of trying to draw the cuteness of a bamf doll in this style and it's just like he's struggling he's like but i everything must be excessive and dynamic what should i do here it's this so BAMF hard doll's about to kill someone <laughs> well we'll get to that <laughs> I don't know. Coming back for some other thoughts about art uh, with you, Lee. Like, I know that you were looking into some of Churchill's other art as well and that you checked out Marine Man, his creator-owned comic as well. And there's like a very different style and something like that. 
Yeah, I, you know, I, I hadn't really looked very closely at Churchill's uh, art before. And, you know, I'm, I'm just going to, I'll put it on the table that I actually, I, I also like his art. I think he's like really uh, talented and, you know, this is not reflective of his talent, but Marine Man has this very, very different vibe to it. Like it, it, it kind of like a uh, Mav, you were saying, you know, that there's a kind of like a, a cartooniness and like a kind of bright brightness to the style of Marine Man. I mean, it wasn't like a very, you know, well-received, I mean, it wasn't poorly received, you know, people like it, but like it only ran for six issues. Mm -hmm. um, and it has a kind of like, I guess it's what, what I, I think I mentioned. It doesn't what? have the Marvel DC, it doesn't have the Marvel DC shine. So it's a, a six issues for a creator-owned pet project, you know, good for him. That's, yeah, I mean, you know, and, that's where I and yeah, this came out in like, 2010 i think right and so like uh we're kind of like at a very different moment in terms of like what's available on the table for like figuring superheroes i i feel like there's a more naturalistic uh kind of style that is available to artists now that maybe was not as available in maybe the early 90s and i, I was saying to anna like over, over chat that like i, I kind of see the influence of uh like j scott campbell you know yes. in 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 his figurations in marine man and in J. Scott Campbell, I see basically like like when everyone in the United States suddenly all at the same time discovered that like like manga was a thing. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like it's like, oh, you know, there there are other ways we can draw bodies. And, <laughs> uh, you know, like uh, at least with Marine Man, I, I, I see Ian Churchill doing something that seems like to my eyes, like just much more enjoyable to look look at. I, I haven't really read the issues, but like it's uh, it, it the art is much better in my view. The one thing that I wanted to mention that Lee brought up earlier was the excessiveness again of the panel layouts and kind of the compositions, which is, you know, this is kind of taking us back to something we were talking about earlier, but because that really stood out to me in this comic and the style is very not the same, but it did remind me of the way McFarlane really like fills pages, you know, like there aren't any gutters in like a McFarlane comic. Everything will be stuck together with goo or texture or bricks or explosions yeah. or something else. <laughs> right and it's just like there's a similar thing going on here but there's just no white space you know everything is full and i don't know i didn't know if like that came across to as like that's part of why i find it interesting just like how much it's reaching for like a certain visual effect and not quite achieving it but it's still like to me when i think about what draws me to art like this at least being interesting i do think about something like that you know like how hard it's trying to you know be what it thinks is innovative in a lot of ways and not hitting that mark but still the effort is there it's like someone is really trying to do a thing and i find my, that very sympathetic in some ways it almost reminds me of that feeling of like you know because it is a very teenagery feeling but like you know that feeling of filling the entire cover of like your english notebook with like doodles and filling <laughs> every inch of space you know and just like that says something about your identity to have so much identity that you can fill every inch of that canvas. And yeah, so that was just one of the things that kind of drew me to this issue as being interesting. Although again, I, I agree with everything. It doesn't serve the story. We have stuff like the panel of Rachel being alone on the cliff thinking, and she's rendered with these monstrous insect legs and a truly <laughs> <laughs> chromium butt <laughs> with like multiple white shine marks on it, which is just like, yeah. I don't even hate it because it's so excessive that you got to laugh. But like, yeah, it detracts from the quietness of that moment. I wonder how much of it is editorial mandate. Um, this is, again, we are not too long after the image guys left and they're doing well. Like for all the criticism we might have of something like Youngblood, and I didn't like it either. Youngblood sold a lot of copies. It did really, really well. I do like Savage Dragon a lot. To this day, I still read Savage Dragon. Spawn mm -hmm. is still being published, right? There are so I feel like I feel like Bob Harris said, Hey, do some of that. <laughs> and like like that feels like that's the direction the editorial direction is do some of that and maybe churchill isn't yet established enough of an artist to know what made you know what made some of that work you know what i mean like it, it just feels it feels like he's just doing he's going through motions yeah i think there's also kind of the 
the craft of the medium involved too because this this is a new style right like as boring as a nine panel grid might be in today's industry um, we have a lot of time to figure out how to make a nine panel grid work and yeah a lot of artists standing on each other's shoulders this style comes into being in comics largely through an auteur process uh, the the liefelds and the lees right Mm -hmm. it's it's an explosion of a new technique so i think when you're trying to impose that on an artist and you're like just go do what these other people do and you're not doing it from you know um impulse or instinct you're trying to replicate something intellectually that we haven't had a lot of time to even process or think about Mm -hmm. i think it's just not going to work yeah i mean i i agree with all of that and i would say you know like again the thinking of like uh like mcfarlane like those whole page layouts i think serve like spawn really well you know like that is to say that like spawn has this kind of obviously like kind of like gothic kind of vibe to it and and the, the kind of the ornateness of the style, I think, works for that subject matter. And I, I again, I'll just repeat kind of what I said that like what I see as problematic about the style is not even the style itself, but the kind of the lack of sync with the story. You know, like uh, I don't know, like you know, the, these people are you know producing to a deadline, so maybe like Richard Ashford and Ian Churchill just needed like a little bit more time to like work on their creative relationship or something. I don't, I don't really know what that creative relationship entails. You know, I don't know how many issues they did together i don't know or like this one i mean ashford's really interesting himself i mean like he Mm -hmm. he found like the acme press and you know they had like the the, this british comic book shop as well and so he's another kind of figure who was like involved in this moment of like you know creator rights and you know supporting alternatives to the to the mainstream but you know i don't really know where he's coming from in in terms of the story here yeah i mean it's tough because this this would have been the only issue that these two particular creators teamed up on we've had ken lashley as a pretty consistent presence since the last like five issues Mm -hmm. or so and we'll have some more issues with him as well but like yeah it's been a real grab bag of artists on this title and people kind of reaching for that style i mean the one other point that i wanted to hit was and like it's not even important but i just wanted to talk about sinister briefly i don't remember whether we even get him again in excalibur i'm thinking not so i mean yeah i don't think we do either and he's not really important to this story but i think i can relate it to the art by asking lee a question that i also asked um of charlotte and i think we also talked about this with Haley. but to your mind do you still see comics in the 90s maintaining those differences that were, you know, historical in the genre of designing villain bodies a certain way and designing hero bodies a certain way? Like, there are sort of conventions of representation for heroes and villains going all the way back to the beginning of the genre. To me, some of that breaks down in, like, the excessive 90s era, and yet we also see exaggerations of those dichotomies in different ways. So I was curious about your thoughts on that. That's a... It's a good question that I have. I don't have a good answer to. Uh, <laughs> <You don't have> <laughs> um, I, I mean, yeah, okay. Like, um, I wish I had a systematic answer. I mean, it's like I feel like Sinister's like presence here is is basically like a kind of uh, like its purpose is to just create an excuse to have this cover, you know, which is which is indeed a very yeah. good cover on the one hand. And I guess like the bot the bodies feel to me like almost indistinguishable. I don't know, like the, the faces as well. Like everyone is sneering in the 90s. Everyone's kind of like, does anyone smile anywhere, I guess? <laughs> yeah. Moira has kind of one panel where she seems almost to be kind of smirking, but then Rory has this scowl, like as he's pouring coffee. Uh, and so like everyone is scowl. Like I feel like the difference might be kind of like in the facial expressions at a different moment, but here they're kind of like blending together. Oh, wait, there's, okay, there's one panel where Scott and Jean are smiling, but they're in a photograph where presumably they're posing. And then the other kind of smile is the, yeah, the other kind of smile is the kind of the, the kind of the evil grin slash grimace. So like we have Ahab, Ahab is grinning slash grimacing at one point. And then I guess we see Phoenix, Jean Grey Phoenix, uh, grimacing, grinning, and that's about it, you know, so I guess my answer is kind of like, no, I feel like the heroes <laughs> and the villains blur together in my reading. 
Yeah, well, I mean, it makes sense, right? Because it was the era of the anti-hero. And so, you know, you see even characters like Nightcrawler in this confrontation with Spore that he has here, you know, has to kind of do the anti-hero thing of like, oh, Spore is making me so violent because it's the 90s and we need an excuse to draw me looking violent. So like, you know, you see kind of that plague out there too, because (laughs) everybody just, I mean, Kurt's got to be showing his fangs all the time. Why does he have fangs if he's not going to be showing them all the time? It's pointless, right? But yeah, I don't know. I did like the two page, the two page splash of sinister kind of thinking at the computer console in terms of being a weird monstrous image i mean you can just stare at an image like that and get lost in it it's like he's got this bulbous body that is made out of this like liquid metal it's so shiny i can't tell which bump or bulge belongs to which part of his body i can't tell what parts of him are his cape (laughs) what parts of him are the computer it just all kind of blends together and there is an interesting monstrousness to an image like that in terms of what is flesh what is metal what is human what is machine all of these things are blended together in a way that's sort of erotic and sensual because of like all these bumps and bulges and yet very distancing too because it doesn't feel human it just feels like anonymous texture but like yeah i don't know that image like just really but like i don't know andrew do you like want to say anything about sort of the place of of sinister in the x-men franchise at this time before we kind of move off of him as a character I don't know. I, I think he, he was a long lingering heavy. Claremont had a big retcon project where he tried to retroactively insert Sinister into like the entire history of X-Men, mostly mm-hmm. through um, classic X-Men backup stories. At this point in mm-hmm. time, he's not known quantity. He's just a mysterious evil guy hanging out in the background who's been pulling the strings forever. And yeah, we're <laughs> just kind of going to bring Pretty that much. in. At yeah. this point, we have the geneticist element of him um, in play in this particular story, which I think is at least a little interesting because he has a cool hobby. Um, other than that, he's <laughs> not a great boy. He's not hobby. super well-developed. Yeah, it's so weird going back to like 90s Sinister versus 21st century Sinister and how different yeah, of a like character Kieran he Gillen. is now. Yeah, like well, God, Killen has, Killen has just totally remade him into a different character. But I mean, not in a bad way. But um, the, No, short shameful confession as a X-Men fan and scholar, Sinister is, original Sinister is for me, maybe the most boring and pointless thing that Claremont did in his entire 16-year run. (laughs) I do not care. Uh, None of those stories are good. None of them are interesting. And I don't mean that in retrospect as a scholar reading it, like as a person with a PhD in 2022 looking back. I mean, as a teenager in 1987, 86, I thought they were boring and stupid. And I like I was like, who is this guy? Are you trying to draw evil Colossus? Is that what what's going on? Like I didn't understand it then. I don't understand it now. I actually like Krakoa era goofy sinister that doesn't uh, that that you know his brain is so warped that he is like maniacal. Like that's at least interesting to me. He is the most mustachy twirly. Oh, I'm yep. you know I've been pulling the strings all along because I am evil and i i did not care then i do not care now and he appears here to be evil because once again we need to remind you that hey kids excalibur's in the x-men universe it's gotta matter it's mr Mm -hmm. sinister kids and that's is the same reason that cable showed up in that one issue and then did nothing and then like how'd he go home what happened like "Mm." (laughs) yeah (laughs) i know that's why well i mean i don't want to (laughs) get sidetracked by it but he's probably my favorite element of like Krakoa era comics because there's just so much going on with that character yeah, right yeah, now. yeah. He's interesting. <laughs> he's interesting. <laughs> yeah and he's going to be the center of the next event coming out sins of sinister so we'll see um anyway uh let's go to some final thoughts i think we've given this issue plenty of our emotional attention but i'm sure there's some little things that we'll each want to hit out hit on in closing so i'll give you a chance to go first andrew anything that you want to talk about that we didn't get a chance uh, just again, speaking to kind of the mess of the issue, the cliffhanger in this issue is really bad. Yeah, oh it's no, not great. I have to read the next issue to see how upset Rachel is with Rory for stepping mm-hmm. in. Like this, it, that, that feels like they had some issue with their pages, which would explain a lot in this issue. Uh, and that was never intended yeah. to be the last page, at least in my eyes. Yeah, that makes sense. I can see that definitely. Mav, any final thoughts from you? Um, nothing super important. It's just something weird. Um, this is the first time, and I, I I've held off mentioning it the last couple of episodes. I I talked about how I 
really enjoy this costume for Kitty. And I know I know the controversy, but I I do like this as you know as Kitty's costume, and she'll be wearing it for decades. So get used to it. Um, what <laughs> what weirds me out is this iteration of the costume, rather than having an X sigil in the gratuitous belt buckle that someone wears somewhere on their body. She's got some and you can't see it. And at least finally on like page five, I think you get to see a close up of what they've done is in that little spot, the little red, red sigil spot. She has a crest with the Excalibur swords on it. Cause like I, I'd spent the previous three issues even back then going, what is that supposed to be? Cause it's not an X. This is a bad choice. They should have just given her an X. because this is this does not scan as a graphical i mean i i I get what you're going for you're trying to give some team unity to them but the problem is none of them nobody else wears it (laughs) um and it's it is too fine a detail to be a um universal like signifier it doesn't it doesn't add the branding element that i think i don't know i don't know who if lashley designed it because he's been doing more of the artwork it doesn't add the visual signifier that I think they want it to. So instead, it's just like a, what the hell is that thing? And now I know. My other thing was, wow, we get to see Rachel's butt a lot. Yep. Yeah, we, we've been talking about butts quite a bit in the past few episodes. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a there's a lot of butt on this one, you know, uh, I mean, with her obnoxiously long. I mean, again, we've talked about the image artwork that they're trying for and not quite getting there. So with her overextended legs, um, my favorite being the, you know, right when Rory walks up on her and we're just going to like, you know, front and center. This page is about ass. That's. Mm-hmm. <laughs> my final thought was of course going to be about this weird nightcrawler naked but not naked scene okay like so many questions so first of all i have to point out that the marvel wiki says that he's naked like someone wrote that into the description nightcrawler lies naked in bed and i was like well i appreciate you focusing on what's important surely i do but he's apparently not naked there are like seams that suggest like his costume has like the singlet part that goes over top so first of all we know it doesn't work that way he's gotten dressed and undressed on panel with this costume before this is just random but just the various details of this room too like he's got a cross behind him just in in case you forget that he's catholic and then he's got like a germany sticker just on his door <laughs> it's not on a suitcase it's just on his door like why would you do that and then don't, like don't you have a canada sticker on your door yeah i just in case you ship I mean, the door somewhere because <laughs> i'm 10 i mean i don't know but like <laughs> i was also wondering about the well, first of all, I thought this was funny because, like, you have the cross and there's been, like, sort of a bunch of, like, you know, whatever, like, tropey stuff that can be read in the context of Catholicism with Kurt in this issue. But then he, like, pulls out a book and you kind of think it's going to be a Bible, but it's, like, Skull Island. <laughs> is this a thing? I tried to look at, like, Skull Island is, like, the King Kong Island, but, like, does correct. this refer to a specific thing? Because there's nothing called that specifically, other than the Peter Jackson movie, which, you know, I'm assuming since that came out 30 years later, he's not referring to. I don't don't know i was confused by that but i looked it up and i just couldn't figure yeah, no, it out so i was, I was I crowdsourcing it, was it. Yeah, yeah it is but like if, there wasn't no, i mean I, I assumed that was it yeah. it was just like a like a I, I just figured you know ian churchill really likes king kong and that was that was my thought and i didn't think of it in, give another choice but you know if you have theories in you know write us that's what, that's what twitter's <laughs> for <laughs> please do honestly because there's not a specific movie called that and there isn't no. a specific book called that so this is just a product that says Skull Island on it. With a yeah. K and much later. Yes. So it just, it was an odd choice to me because you could have so many specific cultural references there. And then I didn't even get, I was like, like a King Kong reference should mean something, but it doesn't mean anything. And I just thought about it way too much, clearly. Um. Anyway, that was basically my final thought. But Lee, if you have any final thoughts that we can use to sum up this issue, anything that we didn't get a chance to talk about, or just any summarizing thoughts for our discussion today that you want to share with the team, the floor is yours. I don't know. Like, I, I guess the thing that, like, two things stay with me. Like, one is I definitely i am going to probably follow up and try to read uh, Marine Man because I kind of think that's interesting. And then the other thing this issue is kind of like, I, I, I'll come back to maybe something I said at the beginning, which is like, this, this is an issue of, like, Excalibur hanging out at the office and, <laughs> you know, Mr. Sinister is also hanging out at the office yes. having a dramatic time. <laughs> doing science you know (laughs) it's like kind of like i i think that's interesting to think about like you know the x-men is doing a certain kind of like knowledge work you know like i don't know i don't know what that is i don't know i don't know where to take that but like you know we 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 start with phoenix with her coffee mug 
I guess it says, what does it say? I'm new or I'm at Mew. I don't even know what that says. I think it's Muir uh, Island. That's where they oh, are. Oh, Muir Island. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so there are a lot, there's a lot of coffee that people are drinking here. And I don't, I don't really know what to do with that. But like, if I was, if I was ever to try to write about this, you know, this comic, I would, that, that's, that would be the hook. That would be the way in for me, I guess. You know, if you, if you pay uh, Steve Morris from Shelf Dust like 20 bucks, he will hire somebody to write about this issue for you. <laughs> <laughs> that's how that website works <laughs> i wrote about exo man war this month because someone paid him 20 bucks to get me to write about it uh <laughs> but i would love to read somebody <laughs> writing about this i would love to read you writing about it lee not it <laughs> <laughs> well maybe we'll i'll have to donate and request lee to write about it okay <laughs> you could write you could write a thousand words on this lee you could do that with your with your hands tied behind your back <laughs> oh yeah no I, I've, I've already written them as, as we've been speaking <laughs> I was not born to live a man's life, but to be the stuff of future memory. The fellowship was a brief beginning, a fair time that cannot be forgotten. And because it will not be forgotten, that fair time may come again. So we will wrap things up there. Lee, a thousand times thank you for joining us. Before we go, we need to remind our lovely listeners of where they can find you. If you want to be found online anywhere, where can people find you? And what writing or projects or anything else of yours would you like people to be looking out for? Well, uh, so I'm on Twitter, L-K-O-N-S-T-A-N, L-Constan. Uh, I have a website, LeeConstantino.com. I got, I got that one, you know, once way back <laughs> when. And I, I, have a, I have a book. I have a new book. That just came out called The Last Samurai Reread, which is a, a short monograph on uh, the novel The Last Samurai by Helen DeWitt. Has nothing to do with the Tom Cruise movie <laughs> of the same name. Uh, and then I don't know when, I you know, like sometime in early 2023, my Art Spiegelman edited collection yeah. that I co-edited with Georgiana Benita is going to be out. So I guess keep an eye out for that too. And we will, of course, link the Liefeld um, essay, which is open access, yay, to all of our lovely listeners and hope they all check it out. Um, Anyway, yeah, just thank you so much again, Lee. Yeah, thank you. This was a lot of fun. Next, seduced by a hologram, we body slide into Excalibur number 75, Hello, I Must Be Going, in which somebody makes their return and other people leave. We'll save our tears for the episode. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out our fabulous YouTube videos, which we've done for many of our episodes, which you can find via our website or the Vox Popcast YouTube channel. As always, if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode, let us know. You can reach out via our website, goshgollywow.com, We've got some fun extras and via Twitter at Gosh Golly Wow, where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras. Thank you, Andrew and Matt, for another extremely rad conversation. Thank you, Lee, for helping us unpack it all. Thank you all for listening. And a special thanks to Maximilian of Thought Form Music for a truly epic theme song. Play us out. Many disruptions today, but we made it.